1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: So that one that I caught there was just short of eight foot, and that they say if you take the dimensions of it, because I couldn't put my arms around its body that was around 322 pounds. So um, so You couldn't get your arms around it? No, I couldn't get my arms around the belly. I was like, I was just trying to like holy just cow. Um, the diet, especially these specific ones, the Genghis arapaima, because they eat so much food, it is hard to believe how thick that round body it is. It's, um, it it's you have to see it almost in person. It's it's a thick, just thick. And then I think where they obvious where they maybe hold a lot of weight too is in in the skull because. Um, it just looks heavy. Everything, yeah. everything of that fish just is is, is very uh, like tied together and just looks looks heavy. If you, if you get close to that, like I, I remember because I actually had not caught nothing for the first day. I, I didn't touch a single fish. And then this fish ate the fly. I mean, it was like at the last end of my strip. It was like 10 foot from the boat. It was just complete solid. It must have wolfed <laughs> and bounced out of there. And it cleared the water twice. So seeing an eight foot fish go full breach, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a poop in your pants moment. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is the Tom Rowland Podcast fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response. But if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like i've earned it the website is tom and that is where everything lives all past shows you can go and listen to any show you can look up all the different shows that we've done both the how-to Tuesdays, the full links, and the physical Fridays. They all live on TomRolandPodcast.com. And the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram. Or you can go to our big account, Saltwater underscore Experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now, let's get on to today's show.
2: Hi there, this is Jacqui Lucas, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast.
3: You hit me in my Absolutely. soft spot man. I was looking through your <laughs> looking through your Instagram and I see you with the Arapaima. That is the fish that uh, it, it is really top of my list. And I don't I don't really know why. I know a little bit about that fish. Maybe you can fill me in on on some cool things about the fish, but it just looks so cool.
2: So so yeah, I, I definitely I can definitely see uh your your desire to definitely catch one of those fish. There's just so many similarities. I think if, if you had to mutate a fish that, that looks almost like a tarpon and an alligator gar, you get this mutation of a dinosaur fish that, um, especially when you see an arapaima jump out of the water for the first time, there's so many similar, similarities between an arapaima and a tarpon when it's got this big head shake and the the gills are just flaring and it's, it you know, it's, it's, Again, same deal as with the tarpon and with the arapaima. If you see that fish, usually when you hook up to a fish, it's one thing and thinking it's a big fish. But when you have a fish that size, come out of the water with their gills flaring and just something that'll stick with you forever. Um, so, I mean, it it it's honestly, it's one of my favorites. It's hard to put. For specific favorite fish, down but it's definitely one of my favorites to catch on fly.
3: What um, what is the is is the mouth structure of the arapaima similar to the tarpon, where where you need to shock tip it and it has a rough mouth, or what what's the inside of their mouth like?
2: Yes, it's definitely uh, they definitely chew the line a bit. I wouldn't say as as aggressively as a tarpon can really chew through a leader. Um, again, we don't really fish anything very sporty out there. It's all like 80 pounds straight fluorocarbon. So we don't really mess around with them, but, um, I can't really recall that I've ever had a Arapaima chew through, chew through the leader, but they definitely really rub it. Um, the one key thing with them, uh, the, the, the I think whereas a top and, uh, it, the way that it extends its mouth and opens it up is definitely there's definitely a lot of differences there. Um, whereas it, with arapaima, it almost just seems like it goes from top to bottom, open a fraction, it a fraction, and then what they do is they create this vortex where they suck that in. I think that suction motion is probably very similar to a tarpon um, as they would go up. But a tarpon is also a little bit more aggressive when it comes to its hunting. Whereas these fish is very opportunistic. They they move around a lot, but I feel like they they'll just they won't move a heck of a long way for a fly. Um, so, so it, it, but it's cool. I mean, it is amazing.
3: So when they roll, they do roll, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're the, the first thing that completely blows your mind, especially at this specific place, um, in, in the Amazon, I think few people know that there's actually a few different species of Arapaima. We kind of just see this giant freshwater fish, but there's a few species so we fished for the ones in Guyana, where you have, I believe it's the Arapaima Arapaima, which is it still gets massive, but then you get this ones in Brazil at Piraruku Lodge where um, we catch the Gingas Arapaima, which just means giant Arapaima. I think that's the biggest one in the in the family of Arapaima. Um they kind of look very similar. I don't know if there's maybe a little bit of a color difference. Um, but but when you first arrive at the place, it's particularly this place, I've it's the volume of giant fish around you. It's just explosions. And then some of them would come up, gulp air. Some of them would come up and slap their tail. Um, Usually I believe when you've got the different ones where they're kind of cruising and they kind of gulp up like it's open wood. And then you get these ones that are coming in from deep and they'll kick their tail. And I believe this is, I I stand corrected, but they need about, uh, I think they can, I think they max out at about twenty-five minutes down in the water. Then they have to come back up. I think seven, seventy or maybe even more percent of their their oxygen from water. The 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 lung system of Arapaima is just it, it's mind blowing. Like that. That again just shows you like Mother Nature is just absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm.
3: And so when you're fishing these things, what let's let's talk about like the whole setup, like um, the water color like the boat situation, how you're finding these fish. I'm imagining if they roll that you're able to see air bubbles come up and maybe, I mean, we do that with tarpon a lot. Like they'll, they'll roll and you can tell the direction they're going, like if the light's low or whatever and you can't see in the water, you'll see, you know, maybe they roll going left, but then you see a bubble going right and they rolled and turned and now they're going, you know, opposite direction. So, you know, that the fish is facing the other way, even if you can't see them. And I don't know if that's something you do with arapaima, but let's go over the whole, the whole situation of, of how, how you're fishing for these.
2: Yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of, lot of good points there, especially with the, when it's fishing for them, like, um, I mean, what you basically go out is you go out um, in, in these very sort of open skiffs that the guys have built, particularly for that fishing where as with tarpon fishing, you just, the, any single piece of obstruction that your line can get tangled in, it'll get tangled <laughs> in. So these boats are super clean, um, very nice back front. You can fish from any side of the boat, super clean. Um, and then uh, you you drive, I mean, you drive with the motor into, into the areas, but before you get to like the honey hole, it's, it's, it's these different chains of big ponds that you move into. Before you go into those, the guys would kick in the trolling motor and um, and then move around with a trolling motor. They also even sometimes when the wind's blowing in the dire- the correct manner or fashion, they'll they'll really try and use the trolling motor as little as possible. So you try and still be um, as uh, as as little noise on the water as possible. And then the I would say the perfect conditions is is when you got a little bit of a wind drift. And and funnily enough. You you sort of casting uh, upwind into the wind, and then you're doing these very slow drifts away from it. So you're actually potentially fishing for fish that's already swam underneath hmm. the boat. Okay. Um, and then and then the the, the strip for, of the fly. I mean, it's it's like fishing for those Isla marada top, and it's literally like like say jerking the gerbil. You literally <laughs> just like slow and just kind of slowly tapping it in there. I do swap a little bit sometimes. I'll give them like a couple of like big movements because the water is mostly pretty dirty. So they, I I presume that they find the fly mostly with, um, with, uh, with their sense of, of what they can feel in the water and maybe noise. Um, their, eyes are actually pretty small. So I don't know how good they are with their eyesight. I I would assume that they use more the noise and and those sensors. They've got a lot of little sensors around the head area to, to find the fly. Um, but but I mean, they, they're so good at it. You can actually sometimes when you are still fishing for it, you can actually hear the vacuum and suck as they're killing the uh, live fish when they, when they just sort of doing their natural hunting.
3: Is that like a um, pop, like hear- a tarpon, like a, like a big pop?
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a big, like it, it actually like a shock through the water. It's like a stump. Um I, mm. I've got a video that I'll send to you where um, this wasn't particularly in this area, but in Guyana where we were fishing, um, and and the the client made a cast. I'll send you the video where you can literally see the fly line bounce as it sucks it in, hmm. and then there's that delayed reaction of what just happened, and then you just complete. Then he's super tight on it. It's <laughs> it, uh, it's that's kind of the whole motion that you go through. Um, it it's this very slow process with the fishing, but once you kind of hooked up, the then the nice. I mean, you have to set the 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 hook as hard as you possibly can, and even then, we we still lost a lot of fish. I mean, we. We, I, I would probably say the conversion rate is probably, uh, like 25, if you get lucky, a little bit more percent, like one out of four fish. Um, sometimes you kind of get in the zone, but eventually you're going to pay for it. You're going to lose a lot of fish, um, but it's, it's purely just getting that hook set. And sometimes, you know, like if you hook it somewhere in the mouth and top, but like inside, you kind of, you've got a good hook set cause there's softer skin on the inside, but anywhere, like on the outside, it's so hard. It's hard to really drill that hook in there. Um, you always have to make sure your hook's are sharp. Um, uh, like I said, just set the hook as hard as possible, and then hold on because the first thing is, is they they're very confused. So they'll just kind of run off on a long run, and then almost immediately jump out of the water and start shaking their head and just go wild. Um, the technique the guides have kind of figured out is if you keep following with a boat. I mean, if it's a 300 pound arapaima, you're just going to keep following him. He, he's he's not going to really give up as much. Even if he gulps air, he's going to re, re- regain energy. So what they do is they go to the banks, um, you go to the bank. So you have the guide helping you get off on the bank. And then you've got this, this area where you can pull them into shallow water. The key element though, is, is you've got one uh, of the native guys of the local guys that try and help beat off Cayman because there's also a lot of Cayman in the area. And then, um, and then you just try and wrestle this thing in. And once you get it to the bank, I'd say like, that's 50% one. And then from there onwards, it's about fifty percent the guides trying to wrestle that thing until you can get it to hand. So it's a <laughs> it's a, it's a definite team effort. But it's a it's wild, and they and the one thing to be so careful of with them, um, I'm sure there's people that's been knocked out by fish like Tarpin and all that stuff. But like you've got a very very high likelihood if you get close to that head and he shakes to get completely knocked unconscious. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's dangerous for sure. I would imagine. I mean, the thing looks like it's got a. Uh, a thick skull. I mean, it it really does. It looks like kind of like it almost has a, you know, for somebody that hasn't seen one of these things, it kind of has the length of a tarpon. It kind of has the body maybe of a, of a, well kind of the body of a tarpon but once you get back to the back end of the fish it has that type of tail and i'm not sure what it's called maybe you know but it's like an arowana has it a bow fin has it it's like the the long fin underneath the fish that that kind of undulates does it do that or is 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 that tail the tail structure is is definitely different than a tarpon
2: definitely and there's that there's that like I also don't know exact terminology of it, but there's like that snake-like movement yes. because also when you try and hold them, they kind of all the time, they're just curling that tail around and they're like wrapping it around. And and as you mentioned before with like the bubbles, um, if you're fishing at bubbles, like let's say for example, the fish just just peaks up and he and he gulps a bit of air and he comes down, like that thing can do a 180 and and go back in a different direction. So if you don't follow that bubble line, because usually when he's when he's when he's gulped there, and he goes down, he does these big sort of bubbles in the direction. So, if you don't, if you're not keyed in on what's going on, you'll cast in the wrong direction because you see the body shape that way, but he can turn his whole body back onto its tail and go the other direction, um, which they do. They kind of funny fish and they still kind of do their own thing.
3: <laughs> what, what do you think that they're eating naturally?
2: So I would presume that they can probably eat anything that comes within that, that head motion. Like I think they've even been known to eat sort of all sorts of uh, like um, uh, little animals that live around the bank. Mm. But I think predominantly um, they eat piranhas. um, They'll eat uh, um, all all the different kinds of little bait fish that's in the area. I think as as soon as they feel any kind of vibration around the head, they just literally engulf and swallow. I, I don't think there's any chewing or there's, It's just getting it in that in that suction and then gets it down to the belly. Um, the, the one thing that, that is noticeable, the reason why, why they, uh, they have to feed so much and you hear them feeding the whole time is that, um, um, that they actually are one of the fastest growing fish that I know of. I mean, they've, I'm trying to remember how quickly they said they grow, but it is, it is something almost crazy. I, Hmm. I think, the, what I've heard before is, is that they, um, they tagged the a, a arapaima, a baby one at like 28 inches. Um, uh, this was a couple years back and I believe it was the next year they recaptured that fish and he had already grown up to like 53 inches. It wow. it's, it's like, I mean, this is like a year, it's just like a feeding machine that just keeps growing. Um, because there's a lot of myths. I, I, I know that the guys do a lot of research on it, but um, you know, even when we handle the fish, we've gotten a, a bit of criticism with handling the fish too much, but we, in these specific areas, especially there at this, uh, this one in the Amazon, you, uh, very rarely have they ever found, I think in, in a total of like the six years that they've done there, they've may have found three arapaima that didn't make it, um, which is a pretty good, good conversion rate. Because the reason why you also know if he, if he didn't make it is, um, usually They'll belly up, and the cayman will start feeding on them. And it takes them a while for the caiman to get those fish, and and that's that way that they found those fish. So, so they they actually. But I I know that they've done studies in Guyana where those fish uh, the mortality rates a little bit high, or they just the the, the work that they do there. It, it seems like a completely different thing. Like it's it's they they seem a little bit more sensitive. I don't know if it's because they get trapped in these ponds with a lot less maybe food or something. But but there's definitely a difference between the two.
3: Hmm, interesting. And then um let's talk about the uh the gear you're using. What what are you go over your rig that you're that you're throwing. So
2: in this specific area we were fishing either intermediate or sinking lines. Um in a very rare occasion the first time I went there one of my clients actually had the opportunity where it was this this thing that happened where um, the bait fish started, uh, there was this, I don't know what exactly happened, but one, it was so crazy. One of the native guys came to us the night before he said, stuff's going to go crazy tomorrow. And we're Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know how this guy knows it, but obviously you, he knows a lot. And, uh, we went through the river and suddenly there were just these, there's thousands of birds and corm- and all sorts of birds along the bank and cormorants. And, um, there were these bait fish just fluttering around. And I don't know if that was maybe an oxygen thing or what exactly happened, but, At that, in that instance, um, my client actually managed to get a couple on popper, which is very unique, but Hmm. for the most part, you are kind of fishing down, um, intermediate or sinking lines with a reasonably in your mind. When you see a fish like that, um, you would always imagine you're fishing like a marlin fly. That's huge with these double hooks set up and all that stuff. But funnily enough, um, the flies we were using were were nothing, nothing bigger than like some of the flies I will use in Africa or in Costa Rica for, um, Foot top. And I, I, I always like to fish a fly with some deer hair on it just for that, for that, uh, vibration in the water and just to have a little bit more body and then, uh, just kind of natural fibers. Sometimes you have piranhas just kind of eating through the lines and all the, or the flies and stuff. So uh, synthetic sometimes last a little bit longer, but I like that vibration in the water with the naturals. Um, and then, I mean, you're just fishing a, a slow movement, um, Um, with followed sometimes by a quick little, little pool, but that never seemed to like make a complete difference. It's just, if the fish finds it in fine, if it's in front of it, then it'll eat it. The one thing I've noticed very clearly on this last trip is, is they were feeding times. So we would go three hours and not touch anything and you'll have them blow up all around you. And then suddenly there's like an hour. I didn't know. We didn't notice a specific time of day. It was just on, like I could see one of my clients, he's on, I'm on. And then suddenly, ba and we were not fishing close to each other, like right next to each other. So there were these feeding zones. Um, and uh, yeah, but I, I, they still kind of seem kind of mysterious in that way. Whereas again, you take something like a place like Guyana, where the guys fish in shallower ponds and they're fishing floating lines and intermediate lines, but the flies are still kind of going down. Um, and you fishing there, you sight fishing a little bit more where you've got bubbles coming up and you're fishing, maybe a gulping and you fish directly at specific fish. So those two places, the technique differ a little bit, but, uh, for the most part, you're kind of fishing down and slow.
3: Okay. And so the places that we, we know that you can do this and they're set up to, to do this are Guyana. And then where were you?
2: Uh, and then the place I was now was, uh, it's called Piro It's in the Amazon in Brazil um and uh this this place is it's crazy you 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 do this trip where you go with a boat for a couple hours once you've arrived in the closest town and then you do this trip through the amazon and then you go to this tributary that runs into these lakes um they actually originally set that whole area up as a um it's more for eco ecotourism mm. and then uh and then the the guys from untamed angling rodrigo and marcelo found this place um they, they found this just abundance of, of arapaima and this is like a place where they feel very comf- comfortable because um, once we fishing usually in the low season when the water is very, very low um, in the high season, those arapaima would just disappear off into the jungle and they can go wherever the heck they want, but they, they seem to congregate back in this area once the water drops. And it's a massacre because everything gets congregated in these these ponds, and it's just fish and big arapaima and arawana, and you've got timbucky and, and piranhas, and it's just the, the, the wildlife and abundance of everything is, is mind-blowing.
1: Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives make a statement, or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over
0: 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started.
3: So are you catching all those other fish as well? When you're, I mean, you're using a fly, you could catch a, a fly that's not that big. You said you could catch a lot of those other fish I would imagine as bycatch. Are you getting any of those?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we're catching a lot of uh, uh, arowanas. I, I, I wouldn't say you kind of because a lot of the time they'll eat the fly. It'll feel like arapaima grabbing it, but it, then they sort of jump out and they like a fraction of the size of a big right. arapaima. But um, the other technique that the guys have developed there is you kind of fish for the with these mouth or mouse or crick or like um, hopper patterns for the arowana. and it's it's a lot of fun, especially if you want to kind of break your day up from from the arapaima uh, fishing. You you can fish for these arowana, sight fish for them. With, I mean, there's more than you can even imagine. And the one fish I also really like to catch is the Timbaki because that's a family of the uh, Paku that you get in Bolivia and okay. other places in the Amazon. And uh, you kind of fish this fruit fly where you kind of plop it three times on the water and then you just let it drop. And they, they you fish these grass beds and then they'll come out underneath the grass beds and eat the fly. And the fight is phenomenal. Like, I mean, a a, a five to 10 pound um, uh, a Timbaki is super strong like he puts a good bait in an iron way
3: wow i don't know that fish but i do know the the paku and um that that's a an incredible fish they get huge round like a bluegill or a permit kind of and and uh is that what the the tamaki is that what you said tamaki tamaki with a b
2: yeah yeah it almost looks exactly like a a paku it's a little bit narrower not as round and um it, uh, it actually grows bigger than the Paku, uh, in the wild. So, I mean, I've, I've, I, they've, they've had some ones that they've kept in captive that they've grown up to. I mean, heck, I think these things were over 20 kilos. They were over 40, 50. Uh, it's huge. Just, I mean, massive. Wow. Um, and they're kind of a staple in the Amazon. They seem to, when you go to the fish market in, in Manaus, um, the people seem to eat them a lot. We had some, uh, we had some Timbaki, uh, but I've had Paku ribs too before. And for anybody that wants, like, it is probably, it's hard to say which is the best tasting fish in the world. But like that, those ribs are like, I mean, they're like pork ribs. They're very fatty, but they they have like this this fish, uh, like,
3: it's, it's awesome. It's amazing. The ribs. Wow. Yeah. And are the ribs yeah. of that fish, are they, are they... Heavy, like like a like a almost like a a cow or an animal rib, rather than a fish rib. Uh,
2: I would say it's almost in between because they definitely have a thick. Uh, they're quite thick, and I mean, when you're eating, you you grab the rib like you would a normal wow. rib, and you just kind of get the meat off of it. It's 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 good. It's really that is
3: good. awesome. I, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, every fish on the fish cleaning table, the the rib cage goes right in the right in the water you know, and so does the, so does the throat. A lot of people are starting to, to keep the throats more and, uh, and cook those because the, the meat in the throat area is really, really good. But, you know, on a big fish, like a grouper, we should try, like, we should try the fish ribs there. I mean, those, they have big ribs too. I'm sure that would be great.
2: Hell yeah. Yeah. They, they'd be awesome. Like, I mean, the way that they, um, cause usually what they would do traditionally, um, is just kind of cook it on like an open flame with the whole fish. And then it just, when you, when you just like lift off that skin a little bit, um, I mean, it is just meat. Uh, so I definitely think on groupers and stuff that they, they'll be good. We've, we've had similar um, like a, uh, like the, the, the rib meat in the Seychelles on some of the groupers that we get there. And it's good. It's, it's, um, it, it, definitely has a, I, I think I probably can't say for all of them, but it has a little bit more of an oily consistency. I don't know if it's just at that rib cage area, maybe it's a little bit fattier, if I can say it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's damn good. Same yeah. as the, the, like the throat. It yeah. is good.
3: Yeah. So you're fishing, the, uh, a nine weight for, for the Timpaki and what are you fishing for the arapan- Arowana? Like the do
2: we fish... Uh, we fish actually the same, same rig, but I, I would probably say the, the most fun, you can probably like a seven or eight weight would be cause they, they, they very acrobatic. Um, but they, I mean, they, the slender body, they don't really last very long when it comes to the fighting stuff and you don't really need to pull them out of every anything. So that that's kind of a fun, uh, seven, eight weight, uh, eight weight rig. Um, and then the Timbaki, you kind of need to hold on to them because they try and go back under the grass. Mm. Um, and then the, the, the Arapaima in, you can potentially fish for the smaller ones with down to a 10 weight, but we usually just use 12 weights. Cause I mean now, and I'm, I'm sure you're the same, like a, like, like for me, I'm not too stressed about the, about, a, about trying to play a fish. I want to get that fish in as quick as possible. And, and I, for most, for the most part with those Arapima, once, once I, I managed to get off the boat, we just straight stick them. So literally just wind down on them and, and try and bring them in. Especially if you've turned the head the first time, if you don't, keep bringing. Um, when that head turns, it's, it's very tough for the guides to land them and they turn back and they go back out and they can do another hundred yard run. And then you have to try and get it all back. So it's all (laughs) just trying to conserve and get the fish in just as quick as possible.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So you're going down there. How many rods are you taking when you're going? I mean, you, you you probably pack like me a little more than you should, (laughs) but what, what would somebody need to take down there?
2: Um, I would probably take, uh, either two 12s or two 11s with for the Arapaima, um, purely because you want one rod rigged with a, fl- with an intermediate and one with a sinking line. So you can change between the two, depending on what the fish does in the area that you fish. And then, um, and then, uh, like I'd say one of each, like you can have a, a nine weight and a seven weight, you know, it's always nice. Well, especially when I'm hosting trips, I try and take one or two backups in case somebody breaks stuff. Um, with, uh, with the Arapaima, if, if they do jump close to the boat, because sometimes, I mean, hell, if you got, I I always say to the guys, like, I know, again, we we try and kind of match this with top and with that, when it comes to head shakes, but it is absolutely mind blowing when that fish shakes its head. There's so often where they'll do that first, like big head shake, especially on the really big ones where it literally feels like you lost the fish as it comes back at you. And then it just tightens up again, mm-hmm. and and sometimes the rods, especially close to the boat, can snap on that point. Um, one thing you have to take with a, quite a truckload with is fly lines, because you'll literally either be fighting a fish, or I had twice in one evening where I made a single cast, and the arapaima just nipped through the 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 sinking uh, running line uh, bit. Really stuck with just like a – yeah, they just let
3: you go. I mean, it's like but you're talking about the fish that you're that you hooked. Or another fish?
2: Well, sometimes you'll be fighting an arapaima and your, your fly line will be running through the water. And, uh, I mean, that just gets those arapa, there's the, the, um,
3: the, piranha.
2: the p- piranhas just going and they right. go so crazy and then they'll just snip through that line. There's been dreams broken. Like wow. people see like a 250, 300 pound arapaima jump and then they're fighting it close in. And then a, a piranha just comes and nips it off. Hmm. Um, and then it just happens purely while you're fishing. They just suddenly just slack line, and I, 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 I had this. Uh, I wore out. I, I had one specific fly that Blaine tied me a game changer that was black that was really successful. I had one more, and this one was kind of went, worn out. And I and I put on a fresh one, first cast, cast in fresh fly line. First strip. Poop. Runner takes the fl- the the whole front of the fly line. Fly oh gone. man.
3: Um. So yeah. I remember when people were first pioneering this arapaima. And that was the biggest problem is that the fly lines mostly mostly back then a lot of the fly lines had 20 pound core and they were breaking all the time and that's what that was the report that i was getting like man i don't know if we're ever going to land these things we're going to have to improve the fly line technology to to land them so where where you know in, in terms of these fish 'Cause with with a tarpon, you know, you're fishing usually, you know, sixteen pound tippet or twenty pound tippet. So if you've got a fly line that's twenty five pound uh core, you're you're we we break very few fly lines. But you, yeah. down there you're saying that you're using an eighty pound uh leader straight to the fly. And yeah. so now you're pulling really hard. Where's the fly line technology now um in terms of the, the the core strength and and maybe there's different brands that are better for for this type of fishing than others. what are you using?
2: So so I, I've been using Cortland lines uh, for quite some time now and I, we've definitely the guys from the Seychelles and myself uh, we've all been kind of working with them to improve and get the core core lines, the core of the lines higher up um, just purely because we're not really uh, igFA or fishing uh, class. So for us, it's just a question of getting that same almost through throughout the fly line to the leader. You, you know, as much as I do, that will always stay a very controversial subject when it comes to what actually is considered fly fishing when it comes to the leader and all that kind of stuff. But, um, with the, with the Arapaima, it just helped so much to, to, um, the, the, the sinking line and the intermediate line at Cortland, um, made with, with like us, um, is a, uh, it's a 60 pound core. Okay. Um, and it has very little, it, it doesn't have a huge amount of stretch. Um, the cool thing they did with the sinking line is they actually, um, uh, thickened out the, the running line a little bit, uh, behind the sinking line so that you also don't tangle as much, you know, like you're casting sinking lines. there's just always a yes. bunch of line that just tangles up. This helps a lot. I mean, it doesn't prevent it from it's happening. stiffer ever, core,
3: but, like the core stiffer. Uh,
2: yeah. Okay. So it's stiffer and it just like runs out a little bit quicker. And then um, I, I, the, the intermediate line that I was using there, I actually worked with them when I was fishing for tarpon in Costa Rica. Cause I said to them, like, I mean, we, we like, like, we just need something also super strong there. Cause we're also not fishing class there. And, uh, and y- you want to just maximum pressure on those fish. And, uh, the, this line, I mean, these two, those sink, that sinking and intermediate line that they make is really, really strong. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to break it. I. I actually stress a little bit when I get hooked on the bottom of something just to try and break it. I've had to wrap line around <laughs> my hips and try and snap it off. Um, so so it, it can get a little bit dangerous, especially when you hook a Arapaima and it shoots off. Same with the top and and it just kind of runs, you know, the nuclear spaghetti, it's all mm-hmm. over your face. And so uh, you don't want to get choked around right. the neck. Um, yeah. When if you but, got straight
3: uh, 80 pound with a 60 pound uh, fly line, you're, and that gets around your, your foot, you're going off the boat. I mean, that's that, that will take you with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it gets, I, I've had in the Seychelles when we were working on those lines, I've had to unwrap a couple of clients, uh, that it got a little bit hairy around the neck, uh, where they got choked a little bit, but, um, it, it, no, no, no tragedies yet. The touch wood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but, uh, uh, I know that there's other companies. I know that Cy Anglers' uh, their lines are doing really well out there too. Uh, the sinking the um, I don't know the actual name, the Sonar, and the, the, there's a couple different I have. And I believe uh, um, a Rio has also been kind of working on their lines a bit. But the the ones that I've personally have most experience with is a Cortland and then the Cy Anglers. I've got some clients fishing them, and they they're doing good. I think the the only time we've we've had uh, um, that we we actually the line failed was when the uh, the piranhas got to them and so that's kind of says a lot no real breakages on the fish themselves the only thing i usually try and improve on my fly lines as i get them out the box doesn't matter what um, i just try and improve the loops uh mm-hmm. with all of them whether i'm topping for anywhere anywhere salt or th- this kind of crazy jungle fishing um i try and just either nail not the welded loops just to keep that that really tight or we just snip them off and put new braided loops on um, you use used a braided loop, this.
3: like you, you yeah. trust that more so than, than a nail knot or anything else.
2: Yeah. So the braided loop we use is a, I still have a little bit of it. It's probably like gold now, but a, a company made it called Goodabra, um, which was this uh, 50 pound and they, they changed a little bit in the uh, going ahead. Cause I've got some of the older stuff, which was easier to loop over the new, newer types of tapers of line. Whereas the new ones they have, you struggle to kind of get over that, mm-hmm. to loop it around. But if you double back that 20, that 50 pound, uh, braid, uh, for that good a and you loop it up, that's probably the most successful setup we've had, uh, that we've used in the Seychelles and all over when it comes to like actually being able to, to hold up against everything. Because, um, I would say nail knots are, are not, uh, especially like for the top and fishing that you guys do is a good idea when you. When you're fishing for maybe spookier fish, um, for better presentation, and also you can kind of chase them with a the boat. But those, uh, when when we are stuck, let's say for example in the Seychelles, you got a hundred pound GT, uh, and you have to hold back um, this like coral and all that kind of stuff that you have to have to stop them. And that's also why we don't fish class as much um, mm-hmm. for all these fish because man, we, we lose a lot of fish and there's no, they, they, we've tried everything. I mean, it's, I can't say we've tried everything, but like we've tried a lot.
3: Well, I mean, that, that is a a sensitive subject with some people. It's not for me. I I could care less. You know, if you want (laughs) to, if you want to, I mean, seriously, like if you want to go after records, great. Awesome. Go after records. If you don't want to go after records, if it doesn't matter to you, then fish any way you want to. I mean, what, I don't know why it's anybody's business, whether, whether you're fishing class or you're not fishing class. I, I could care less. I really could. Uh, and and it's better for the fish in so many situations if you fish much heavier. Um, now, of course, if you've got somebody that is as accomplished as as you or Andy Mill or somebody that's really, really, really good and can put 16 pounds of pressure on a 16-pound tippet regularly without breaking it off, okay, cool. You can give somebody else an 80-pound straight leader, and they can't put 16 pounds of of pressure on that fish, right? So you can have anglers that are extremely accomplished and know how to put the the amount of pressure on that, that is required. And they're very skilled and those people should be setting records. That's, that's awesome. But yeah, you know what you're doing, you're, you're pioneering new, new places and pioneering new techniques and pioneering new fish. And, you know, maybe you have to do it this way to figure out how to catch them. And then you start going for, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's somebody else comes along and, and wants to try to set a record and they learn how to, how to do it. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I, I, I really don't get into that kind of uh, an argument one way or another. It's like, are you having fun? Do you like, yeah. do you like what you're doing? Then do that. Like, don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you get a lot of heat for this because, because yeah. your, your, your Instagram is, is super cool. By the way, what is your Instagram if anybody think, wants to follow it?
2: Uh, it's at CaptainJackProductions.com. If they look Yaku Lucas, they'll find it too.
3: Right. At, uh, at Jack but yeah. you have taken but, some heat on that subject, right?
2: Y- yeah. And it's, you know, it's so hard. Like I've learned from some of my friends to sometimes just hold back, think about it, and then maybe reply the next day. But sometimes I'm I'm on the same page as you. Like my whole career revolves around when it comes to guiding is people having fun. However they want to have it. That's not my. I'm. I'm going to do whatever I can do as a guide to give them those opportunities. Um, so, so that's what it's about for me personally. I have to say that the one thing I do have to respect, and and m- m- you definitely would have more experience in it than I do, is 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 actual like. Um, it is a great set of skills when somebody is able to like pull wine at that specific pressure and, and just that like like I, I had I, this year. I spent a bit of time with David on the boat, David Mangum mm-hmm. too, and just. Just seeing sometimes when, when, you know, some people are just at another level when it comes to fishing, um, I I would say my stuff is a lot more unrefined. I'm just like going in there, like throwing myself at it, but there's definitely people that have refined it really well. And that, that comes down to doing stuff with less, less line weight and all that stuff. But to me, it's never going to be something I'm going to try and pursue. It's not, it's, I don't care.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it, to whatever, to each his own, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, I, I certainly respect both sides of it. Like if, if you yeah. want to pull as hard as you can and you want to get that fish in really fast and you want to catch some fish that other people may not have been capable of, 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 fishing for yet, use whatever you want to. And and I think that's yeah. why there's an all tackle record and there like, whatever, no rules, like just the biggest fish you can ever catch. But there is, I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people that can, that can do the records and, and it's hard and it takes a ton of practice and it takes a ton of, of trial and error, mostly error to learn how to do that. Right. (laughs) Like you got to break, you know, the people that can pull like that um, have probably also broken off more fish than anybody else. Right. Because they're, 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 pushing, they're pushing the boundaries of what they're doing. Now you get somebody like, uh, Andy Mills, a great example, but there's plenty of others that have done the same yeah. thing where he invented some way that he could practice that over and over without having to go catch a hundred pound tarpon. Cause you're only going to have, you're only going to have so many opportunities at catching a big tarpon or a big fish that could, um, test your tackle. So if you can come up with something in your garage or in your driveway or in your living room where you can practice over and over and over again, you're going to get much better, much faster at that, at that type of fishing, but you know, whatever, if that's what you're yeah. into, great.
2: Do it. I, I, th- I, I think the, the time that I knew that I wasn't going to be too much interested is I was guiding somebody in this, um, uh, a gentleman in this, in, in Farqua- And uh, what ended up happening is we just lost a lot of fish too. And we left a lot of like hooks and stuff in fish's mouth. And uh, I was like, man, it just seems, this seems futile. And I, I, it just didn't make sense to me. It makes sense to other, but I would love to, I actually, even before we talk, I, I should have probably checked out what, if there is any world records for Arapaima on fly. Because the one thing that would be interesting to me, especially is just how firstly you set the hook, because the way that we set the hook, I mean, I'm putting like 140 pounds back into that fish. Like the 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 way that the guide Raphael described it to me is he does jujitsu, and he says that you go full body jujitsu set on it. So all I'm just saying the whole time is like I'm standing like a dog pointing at my rod, focused the whole time. And if I feel just a bump, because sometimes it's it's a hard thump, and sometimes it's just it feels like you're going through leaves, and then um and then you just lean back into it. And I'm putting a lot into it, so that first initial set. Would be interesting with IGFA. and then secondly, the head shakes and the jumps. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's going to require somebody yeah, with
3: well, patience. Well, somebody can figure it out for sure, and it might <laughs> it might require that they go spend a month down there, you know. Yeah. But but there's somebody that can figure it out, and maybe there's some different things that you could do with hooks. I don't know if anybody's practiced uh, or, or even experimented at all with circle hooks, but you can tie circle hook flies that can, can make a big difference because on a fish like a tarpon or, um, you know, particularly like a permit, it, it, it almost catches a permit in the side of the, in it, right in the corner of the mouth every single time. I mean, very rarely does a circle hook land anywhere, but in the corner and maybe, you know, with some fish, maybe that's, you know, a way you can do it and you can do it with flies. Um, but I don't know, has anybody, do you know of anybody that's tried the circle hook for the arapaima?
2: Actually not. That's an interesting thing. I think if there's one person that would know, um, I mean, I'll check with them again at some point, is, is uh, Rafael, because I think he's probably one of the guys that's been on the water for Arapaima the most, of any person I know, um, Rafael Costa. He's one of the guides at Piraruku, Um, And they've got a whole gang of guys that really know them well, They're all Brazilians. And then Oliver and his buddies that uh, um, developed that one at Guyana, I know that they had a lot of trial and error. I mean, mm-hmm. they... They lost a lot of fish, and eventually they came down. It's funny that because with the hooks and with fl- well, the flies, um, both places kind of came down to the same recipe. The f- flies is very similar in what they look like from a profile. The colors may vary a little bit, but um, the flies that we used in both worked at same both locations. But um, I haven't seen any with with circle hooks, but it could make sense, especially if you can get a fish to gulp or suck that vacuum in. And then I I would think that sometimes I'll turn a little bit and just get that circle yeah. again. I mean, yeah,
3: they're like probably you said, somebody turning. Somebody starts to try it. They're probably turning because that's that. I mean, that's how a tarpon eats. And you know, you take a fish like that. He eats. And then he goes back to doing whatever he's doing. And, you know, the turn might not be like a GT or a Jack Crevel or something like that. It's this huge sharp turn. I imagine that those fish are eating and then like sinking back down. And maybe that's when you just kind of hold that line and then just pull it tight. But what do I know? I've never caught no. one. I've never even seen <laughs> one. I, I saw one at the aquarium and that's why, that's why I have this, this. Passion for them is every. I go to the, this aquarium and they have one of these giant fish in there, the the arapaima. I'm like, man, that just looks like an amazing fish. So you mentioned earlier, if you hook a 300 pound arapaima, kind of like you could, right? I, I don't know how big do these things get.
2: So this funny story. I mean, I I haven't posted too many photos about this first fish that I caught the first time I went out there. Just. Um, you know, like how aggressive social media, cause we, we, we were surrounded by five Cayman. So we had to pull the fish up a little bit closer to the bank. Um, so that one that I caught there was just short of eight foot. And that they say, if you take the dimensions of it, cause I couldn't put my arms around its body. That was several, wow. three, three and twenty two pounds. So, um, you so couldn't I, get your arms around it. No, I couldn't get my arms around the belly. I was like, I was just trying to like, Holy just get a gauge. Cow. um, the di especially these specific ones, the Genghis Arapaima, because they eat so much food, it is hard to believe how thick that round body it is. It's, um, it's, you have to see it almost in person. It's, it's a thick, just thick. And then I think where they obviously, where they maybe hold a lot of weight too is in, in the skull because, um, it just looks heavy. Everything, everything of that fish just is, is, is very uh, like tight together and just looks, looks heavy. So they say that that one was around 322 pounds. Um, I believe that they get like in the 400 pound range, but um, the, that isn't even the biggest one. Uh, they've caught one, they've caught uh, two or three over eight foot now, um, but uh, they they still haven't got like specific like details on like actually slinging and putting some fish up. These are like just calculations they're still doing in Guyana. They've definitely had sling some fish and, and really got some more accurate weights. And if you take their, length and girth. And you took these that's supposedly bigger and girthier in Brazil that they should be even, even bigger than that. But, um, if you, if you get close to that, like I remember because I actually had not caught nothing for the first day, I, I didn't touch a single fish. And then this fish ate the fly. I mean, it was like at the last end of my strip, it was like 10 foot from the boat. It was just complete solid. It must've wolfed <laughs> and bounced out of there and it cleared the water twice. So seeing an eight foot fish go full breach. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of a poop in your pants. Moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's wild. It's wild. It's, it's, I think um, as much as we all love saltwater fishing, and I've been trying to tell this to a lot of people is that saltwater is, 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 is what I live and breathe. But this, this jungle fishing should be a separate fashion, facet of fly fishing or conventional fishing because the opportunities are endless. I mean, we all dream about fishing the Amazon. We, we've seen like it's 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 just that unknown and just that all that weird stuff and bugs and all that stuff that that's just very intriguing. It's 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 um it's cool.
3: Yeah, man, I got to do it one of these days. I, <laughs> I definitely want to do it. Maybe maybe I can go on one of your next trips or something. But um, I was at Costco uh, not very long ago. And the kid that was uh, bagging all the groceries and, and working at the, at the deal, he had what I, would, what I would describe as the ugliest pair of cowboy boots I've ever seen, right? But he was super proud of them. He thought that they were cool. And my wife obviously thought they were also the ugliest pair of cowboy boots that she had ever seen because she said, those are interesting boots. What kind are those? And he said, these are arapaima and i i took a double take i was like <laughs> what and and he goes yeah it's a big fish and i said oh i know exactly what it is and but i didn't know that they were making boots out of them and you know what i had um my daughter wanted some cowboy boots so we took her to shop it at uh, a cowboy boot store and sure enough man i saw the same pair and i just looked at him and i was like i don't want those um and i didn't even Look at them, but I had seen that there was a whole shelf full of them, and I was like, "Man, those are really ugly cowboy boots." But they're making (laughs) boots out of arapaima. Do you know about that? Do they? You're in Texas. Do they have? Is that a thing?
2: Man, I don't know if I've seen them in uh, in the boot shops here in Texas. I can. I I definitely should have a better look. Do you know what they look like?
3: What the boots look like? I mean, so so they look like if you took the scales off of the arapaima, it would leave. A, a ridge of leather that looks like the scales. So imagine that you just pulled all the scales off, and you know what the scale pattern looks like. Well, the scales are obviously really grown onto the skin, like unlike yeah. other fish, right? Because it looks like a piece of leather with with a with a crosshatch pattern on top of it. That that's the arapaima leather. So they must have just incredibly tough skin too. Um, Once you, once you get the scales off that they're making boots out of these things.
2: So, so I know that in Manaus, they actually had a a shop completely dedicated. It was this boutique shop that they dedicated to making uh, handbags, bags, luggage, um, and boots out of Arapaima leather. Um, I never ended, I, I never went there um, however, like I can only imagine like how it was looked because the one thing that I was very noticeable is throughout all the arapaima that we've caught and that I've been around is they never lose a scale. Like huh. sometimes you'll see them shake off a scale or something. Maybe it's just not something I noticed as much, but it just seems like, even if you start yanking on them, I, I, I mean, I should have taken one of the scales of the, of that first big one that I caught, but I mean, it, it didn't register at that point. It was too overwhelming, but, uh, Um, They actually, in in Brazil, they use the scales, they dry them out and ladies would use them as a nail file. So they, they, they become like rough uh, texture and it's hard to kind of um, get through that. They can use those, uh, those scales for a long time as a nail file. And um, I know they've used them for, for different stuff. Unfortunately for them, um, and I've tasted it before, their, their meat's also delicious. So they quite a delicacy and you'll find them in restaurants there, but most of those that you find there are farmed. So I've got some of these videos where we're feeding these arapaima in this little sort of caged area, which is, I mean, sad, but it's better that them killing them than the native, like the natural ones. Um, but, uh, but they, they, they very, uh, the, the meat and everything is, is delicious. So they also, the place that, I, that we went to now is they are able, there's one day or a week, I think it's actually just one day where they are allowed to hunt um, arapaima. And man, they they I don't know if you saw Carter Andrews's episode on it, but they um they the one guy that was our boat driver, he is a Jedi with harpoons. And he actually once a year harpoons Arapaima. Now, you know, you can be as badass as you want. If you harpoon arapaima, you definitely trump everything I've told before in my life. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, just having the patience, apparently the guy would sit there for eight hours and just wait for the right moment to harpoon these fish. He's got different harpoons and, and it, it, it's badass. I mean, it's, it's not uh, something that, that any of us are kind of used to because you, you're going to keep it when you, when you whack it with a harpoon. But man, that's badass. The
1: 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history, designed by John Browning.
3: For sure. Um, well, that was what I was going to ask about, because when I saw the boots, I thought, well, I wonder if they're you know, getting these from the wild or if they're farming them. And they do seem like a fish that would be, you know, farmable. Like they don't seem yeah. like you would need... That big of an area, like farming tuna, that's tough. You have to have these. I mean, it is possible, and they have done these where they have these canyons that just just drop right off from the from the volcano above, and and it it, it just drops off to a thousand feet right off the shore, and they just put a net across the whole thing, and it goes all the way down, and they have this whole area net netted, and there are tuna farming operations even free floating tuna farming operations where they just like put a net around a whole school and then they just keep them there and they feed them and feed them and feed them and and uh they could do it that is like extravagant and incredible that somebody would go to that length to, to farm a fish. But the arapaima seems like, like, especially because I've seen them in an aquarium and this aquarium is probably, I don't know, maybe it's 10,000 gallons. It's, it's, it's the size of a, of a good size wall. It's probably 10 or 12 feet high, probably 50 feet across. And there's a, a legitimate, 250 pound arapaima in there. And it's been in there for 10 years. Like it does just fine in there. So when I saw that, I was like, well, those would probably be very farmable and maybe that's where they're getting the boots. But I was just kind of wondering like what, what just with your experience down there, like what that fish means to the, the native population, because it seems like anytime you have something that is that source of a protein, like if you go to the Rocky Mountains, it's the elk. If you go to, um, you know, I don't know, anywhere, there's like, there's a there's a main animal that is a, a major source of protein. And if you get that, your family or your village or whatever can eat for a while. It would seem like the arapaima, it's one of the largest freshwater fish on the planet. It would seem like that would be a, an incredible source of protein um, for, you know, the people that live in that area. So are they overfished or have they been overfished or where, where do you think that the, the population is right now?
2: So I do think that they're very vulnerable fish just purely because they have to come up for air so much and they kind of live in areas which is easy, accessible to humans. So, um, so the, from the farming point of view, so if 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 you look a little bit into arapaima um, on how they, they they the whole breeding process work is I am not sure if it's male and female or just male or just female but once they uh, have the larvae or the smaller arapaima they'll actually look after them for a long time so um, I know in Guyana um, in these ponds where they can track them a little bit easier is they'll go and, and and like just cruising a certain time of the year and they'll actually look after they keep Um, I don't know if that's why the head shaped that specific Mm. way, but they'll actually keep all the babies. Like I don't know if it's a hundred or a thousand that will keep above their head and just look after them and around the, 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 the area. Um, so they look after them for a very long time. And what I do think is, is when they farm them, this, I also stand corrected, but when I went to the farming area is they seem to separate, um, the different ones, because I think if there's no one specific, um, Arapaima looking after the, the the smaller ones that they kind of have to to just split them up so that they can feed the smaller ones so that the, there's not nothing else that can attack it so they end up in the farming where they farm them they kind of split them up but in nature they look after their young um, until uh, I don't know exactly what size like I said they grow pretty quickly but um, how this whole thing came about for for this one specific location in Brazil um, uh, one of the owners of Untamed Rodrigo. Um, he, what happened is, is he wanted to go and operate people and take people to this place for, for, a, for a while, but there were certain uh, regulations and stuff and it was ecotourism and they weren't possible. It wasn't possible. But then the government in the, in the, in the closest town in Tefe, they wanted to open a fishing, uh, a, a percentage of people that, that in that village that's close there that can actually harvest, um, 25% of the Arapaima in that area. And with that, he managed to, he heard about it and he went in immediately to the villagers and all the people and started explaining to them, if they can keep these fish alive, they can firstly, the value of an Arapaima is a lot more from a a tourism and fishing point of view than actually just harvesting them. Um, So he then immediately put in all these licenses and stuff and started talking to the locals. The The funniest part of the story is, is and, and he'll tell it better than I do, but he goes into this village with all these like, like, like badass uh, native people. Um, and then, and then he's explaining to him, explaining to them what, what he wants to do. And first thing they said to him is you'll never catch it on a fly rod. Cause he's showing them fly rod and flies and stuff. They're like, okay, this is impossible. Then he shows them a top video hmm. and, and like just that similarities and what you can catch on a fly rod. And then that started piquing their interest. And then, um, they're like, okay, cool. Um, we'll give you a shot and you're going to go out and catch an Arapaima tomorrow and we'll make the decision on it. So he says they bring out this like six meter long boat that they all sitting on with these like deck chairs and they put him on the front of it and they drive him up into this, like into the different lakes. And he said the water was like way higher. It was high water season. So firstly, the challenge was pretty high to try and even get one. Um, and then, he said that actually the first session he failed. He didn't catch one, and then um, the guy that does all the harpooning, the the younger guy, said to him, "Look, I can take you to this area which is a bit shallower, and maybe that you'll find one." And uh, and the, 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 that's how the story kind of started with him opening the operation. He managed to hook I think two or three, and he landed one. Um, and then like talking about your whole operation based on trying to catch a fish, and that's how he ended up opening this operation and untam running that thing is. Is by catching a fish and showing the locals that, and so now it's awesome because now they they have the money that they can send to the native people so they can look after it. They still, like I said, they still have a day or a week where they are allowed to harvest a couple fish to take to the market and sell that, um, or keep it for themselves. But um, the whole system seems to work quite good, and um, they've got people looking after, looking to see if there's no poachers and rangers and stuff. So,
3: man, it's a, that's a, it's a great it's a good story. success story. That's a great story. I mean, that, that, I would love to get that from him. Uh, Hook me up. I'd love to have him on the, on the podcast too, to uh, find out that sounds like that sounds like that story could have gone bad in about a thousand different ways. (laughs) And you might, you might uh, just end up staying out there with the Caymans and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll just leave this guy out here. But uh, it's, 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 it is.
2: I'll 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 definitely put you in touch with Rodrigo. Great character. And he, like if he explains the story to you, you'll laugh a lot because he explains it really well and very intimate. And, and he's done the same, like with this place we went to afterwards at Shingu, um, where we fished, uh, for this payara, the vampire fish, like he had to similar, like he goes to all these villages and then he shows them fly rods. And first they always think like, he, like, what are you doing? You're so weird. And then, uh, and then he shows them and then it works out. So, they've been pretty successful introducing a lot of cool jungle stuff to people.
3: Yeah. And so that, uh, I'd like to know how you, um, when you do this trip and obviously untamed is, is one that, that does it, but like, what's the travel look like to get there? How do you, what, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you're going way back into the, it seems like you're going way back into the jungle, but just kind of describe the trip. Like you're leaving from Texas. How do you, how do you get there? What's the timing? Um, you know, what does it look like?
2: I mean, I, like, I don't want, to, su- don't want it to sound like an advertisement, but so... Like,
3: no, no, all my I, I'm just interested. <laughs> like,
2: So the majority of my hosted trips I do as an ambassador for Yellow Dog and they've they've helped me to like... I mean, I'm used to traveling to far off places uh, in very uncomfortable situations, but they've helped me, especially when I'm hosting trips or, or doing these kind of trips, which is something that they potentially want to offer other clients to go into and then... So they'll help me a lot with logistics and communicating with the outfitter or the people that's trying to set this specific location up. Rodrigo I've known for a long time, him and Marcelo that's got untamed from a long time ago when we filmed a movie called the jungle Angler, in Bolivia. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I would just communicate all this information with yellow dog and then we put the, tra- the, 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 travel together. So how I traveled is, is I went from Austin, um, to Atlanta they actually used to have a direct flight from Miami to Manaus, which would have cut off like, I mean, 12 hours of traveling at least. Um, But now they closed a lot of flights because of COVID and there weren't as many people traveling there. Um, So we flew from Atlanta to Sao Paulo, which is way South. And then we shot up North again to, uh, to Manaus um, in another long flight. Um, And then, from there onwards we overnighted in Manaus and it's kind of cool when you overnight that you can go to this fish farm and you kind of hang out and see some cool Brazilian stuff. And then we've got another small, uh, smaller charter uh, flight uh, to Tefe. And then you've got the boat ride to the lodge all in all um, you end up spending probably about a day and a half of, of traveling um, until you get to the lodge and you set up your gear and you usually fish that afternoon, um, which it's still at the end of the day, quite a bit shorter than traveling across to Australia or the Seychelles and stuff. But I mean, for, for, for all these trips that anybody uh, plans on doing, you kind of have to prep yourself for a little bit of like uncomfortable traveling, especially when you go to like th- the U S is comfortable, things go wrong, but it's comfortable. Like when you travel to a foreign place, that's a third world country, potentially, um like my f- one flight they bounced me off of it in sao paulo but they did put me on another one but i had to just adapt and go and do something and wait for the next flight and um so these things go wrong sometimes uh quite a quite a quite regularly but like i said the main thing for people to remember is just go with the flow like if you get angry about that stuff it's going to consume the the fun of the trip so you'll get used to it and it is what it is when you end up there it's the juice is worth the
3: squeeze yeah, does anybody is there um you know whenever I go on a trip like that, I'm so careful about getting sick um because you could get sick from the water, you could get sick from the food, you could get sick from all different types of things um did did was there any problem there, intestinal <laughs> problems or anything?
2: So with these places, they definitely make you well aware. Um, especially the the uh, pirarucu, it's not advised. So the the lodge setup is super cool. It's this ecotourism. Uh, uh, um, it's a lot. It's these cabins that's built on top of the water. Uh, um, a lot of the houses in on the Amazon in this area, they are built on these giant logs, so they float. So when the Amazon comes up, the houses go up and huh. go down as the water flows. So it's the same thing with this lodge. I mean it's all on top of the water. And at nighttime, when you're sleeping, you've got like these Arapaima slamming into the bottom of the lodge and then you've got all your room and you've got caiman around you. So, um, so, but they advise you because a lot of the water that you shower in is just kind of pumped out. It's filtered, filtered a little bit, but they tell you just rather drink. So they'll bring in jugs of water. I would, I would suggest always for anybody when they go to locations like this to take potentially some sort of, uh, um, uh, water cleaner with, or just like something that you can, if, if you have that, you got these actually small straws that you buy now that you can suck that filtrates the water. Um, if you are a little bit nervous about it. Um, and then, uh, they, um, the, the food wise, I mean, heck it was, it was awesome. It's, uh, it's, uh, we, we ate, uh, we ate some of the local fish and we ate some chicken. It's, 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 I mean, it's good. Vegetables are good. Um, they've got these funny little vegetable gardens that they'll also grow on this wood on top of the water. <laughs> um, so it's, so it's all, all very cool and clean. And I think every time somebody thinks about the Amazon initially, I had somebody message me like they want to go do this, but they're so scared of all the bugs and all that stuff. Look, I'm a 240 pounds South African. I don't like spiders. <laughs> I don't care about snakes, but like these things don't even, you don't even like really comprehend when you're on those places because it. I don't know. I just don't, you don't see as much of it or, um, once you go into the jungle itself, then you might see more of it, but, um, but it's not something that really bothers me food or anything. i suppose, I mean, I've picked up some bugs, other places in the world that'll kill those bugs inside my body. But I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's fine. It's honestly a lot easier than most people think. Um, very, a lot easier.
3: With a little bit of, um, Experience traveling. You can also get, you can, you can knock your chances of, of getting some sort of intestinal bug down significantly. (laughs) Like, um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, if you can not brush your teeth with the water. You know, coming yeah. out of the tap, not you keep your mouth sealed shut in the shower, and and you know you're just you're not back home. You're you're kind of taking a, a a real quick shower if you're taking one on a daily basis, and then you're not getting any of that water in your mouth. The fruit, you know, like even even washing fruit um, with the water and then eating it like that <laughs> could be that could be it. You know, so I'm not like you. I'm not that worried about the snakes and the the caimans. I'm more worried about the tiny little invisible bug that's in the water <laughs> that's going to make you uh, unable to fish for for three or four days because you're just. But you know what? That can happen, man. It just happened to one of our hosts on on one of our shows um, right here, and it was right there in Texas. Uh, went to went to Texas and picked up something somewhere along the line, probably from a gas station. And sick for sick for four days, couldn't couldn't fish, couldn't film, couldn't do anything. I mean, incapacitated for four days. So it can happen just as easily in the United States as it can happen anywhere else. But it does take some common sense of just just being careful about what you're putting in your in 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 your body, and and just realizing that it's not the same as back home. I remember I went to, um, I think I was in Honduras and in the lunch was an orange. And I was trying to get this orange open and I couldn't, I couldn't get it open. It had a real tough, tough hide on it. You know, it was like a baseball. And so I took it and I bit it and, and just kind of broke the, 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 the orange peel with my mouth. And all of a sudden my lips started going numb and the side of my face started going numb. I don't know what was on that DD, DDT or something. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, that would never happen, you know, in in the united states but you just got to be kind of careful and realize that this is different there's different stuff on the fruit there's there's you're not equipped to drink that water the natives may be drinking it like it's no big deal but man one sip of that might might (laughs) not go very well
2: yeah they definitely adapted i mean most of the people i mean those those again when we spend time now with some of the local villages and native people they just I mean, it almost seems like they've got life worked out a little bit better than us because we complicate, overcomplicate our lives so much. Like they, they just get on with stuff. The, the, the quality, Uh-oh, uh, the, lost your, Oh, there you go. Oh, there you oh,
3: there go. go. You're back.
2: Sorry about that. Um, the, those guys have just got, those native guys just got it. so worked out so well because, uh, I mean, they just get on with life. You should see in this one place, how good the kids and everybody just swim in the water, just immediately used to water and, and all, all that stuff—they just seem to be less phased with the with the small things that we complicate our lives with. Um, and and the funny thing about this last lodge too is is that the the one girl that was working on ecotourism told us that with all our things that we've got going in life, they find us almost more fascinating than we find them. Like they're like <laughs> they look at us these crazy weird people with all this fishing stuff and cell phones and and all that stuff. Um, but but yeah, it. it, it I mean. Like, I mean, also, just to get back with the, the the sort of bugs and little things, I agree with you 100%. Those things freak me out. Like those, uh, what's it called? The bot fly. Or yeah. um, I just had a client ask me about uh, a, a trip to Bolivia the, about the Leishmane or whatever those diseases are. And that's realistic things when you come. So if you, a lot of the times, that's also why it could be advisable to use some of the operators, like like I said, again, Yellow Dog, just because... So what I'll tell a client if I'm hosting a trip is, is firstly, when we go to Bolivia, when we land with a chartered flight in the first village, you want to wear long pants. You want to have some uh, bug stuff on you because if you're going to get lish, then you're going to get it there because a bug's going to bite you there. And that's where all the humans are around. Even if you're going to get malaria, you're always going to get it in a populated area. But that's the kind of info that you really need before you go on the trip. Um, The first time we went there, I didn't have that. I got bitten a bunch. I got lucky not to get sick by anything but yeah, small things like that can, can quickly go really bad. Uh, and your body will tell you, like I had one, I ate something bad in Bolivia once and it was, I mean, I got a little bit of food poisoning. It took me, luckily my body got rid of everything like within an hour or two, like just like, yeah, I I immediately (laughs) knew something was wrong. Um, so, so, but, but, but being prepared for a pre-trip definitely makes a difference to at least get those small things. And like you said, just not being, like the small things just they'll let you know but close your mouth when you shower all that stuff that's a lot of really great advice
3: yeah for sure well it it, it's because i have made a mistake before you know and you only have to do that once and you're like okay i want to know every possible thing i can do to avoid being that sick again and you know you you just make a a lot of people you know can can it for a while but when you get really really sick in a in a foreign location and like me i'm a big baby when that happens and i need my (laughs) wife taking care of me and i need i need everything i you know but when you're by yourself and you're in a foreign location and there's nobody taking care of you and you are as sick as you've ever been you will do about anything you possibly can to not to to avoid that next time yeah and um you know, and usually so the I've, conditions
2: I've are, sorry. And usually the conditions, like if you get sick, uh, I mean, if you take Honduras, like you said, or or even if you go into the Amazon and you get sick there, not only are you feeling horrible, but the conditions around you are 100 humidity. You've got uh, 100 100 uh, 100 degrees out there. It, it, you're sweating. You're uncomfortable. You're getting dehydrated. It emphasizes everything to when you get sick at home and you can jump in bed and be in an air-conditioned room. It just right.
3: it just escalates everything really quickly now what are the do you know what what's the brand of the straw you were talking about is that a life straw that you're talking about or what do you what do you take for for your water filtration when you're going on all these different trips I can't remember the exact name of it. I've got it packed away. I know there's one called a life straw. And and there's even like a water bottle that you put the water in the water bottle and then you suck through the straw of the water bottle and it's supposed to filter it. And then there are lights and other things that are supposed to kill everything. Like you put this blue light in the, or or the water bottle has even got a blue light in it and you hit a button on top and it, it lights it up and that blue light's supposed to kill everything. I don't know if it works. I would do the blue light And the straw and a filter and something else, you know, if you have it, but, but it's become so much easier. Like you say, they have built all this stuff for backpacking and there's, there's tons of them that will do a really good job for Giardia. Like you can, you can get that bug out of the water, you know, no problem. It's changed backpacking. Like you don't have to carry 50 pounds of water with you anymore. You can carry one of these little devices and you can get it right out of the stream and drink it right there. And it works. I mean, it really works. So I would imagine that it's probably working for that, but maybe double filter, double filter the water down there. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I don't think you can be too coarse because Giardia is a bad one. Like, I mean, that that's a terrible thing that you don't want to be involved with. But uh, um, I think uh, also apart from the filtration system is, is I always take a couple of like little protein bars and stuff with just to supplement when you don't feel like, I mean, when the food doesn't really just just a, a few little supplements that, that really go a long way um, on trips like that. Um, I know there's a lot of people that get finicky about eating. Like I must say, be like in Mongolia or other places. Like the food there, to me, is fine. But to other people, maybe it doesn't seem like if you have some of the mutton or some of that stuff is a little bit strong. And you also don't want to go a whole week comfortably without eating. So maybe a couple of protein bars if your weight weight allows it and all that stuff. Um, so there's a little bit of those things that can that can help. Um, I have to say that, I don't know if you know anybody. I, I've got one friend, Oliver White, that I said before yeah. that, that's gotten um uh uh what's the other one um that you get from tropical fish, the um uh cicatera. That yeah. one freaks me out, I think, the most because I think that stays in your system too. Um, and we get it in the Seychelles on barracudas and all that kind mm-hmm. of you uh, can get it fish right, that you need you can get to get
3: it right here in the keys. You, you, yeah. you can get it, it's it's it happens, people get it a lot. Um, but yeah, yeah, you don't want that one either. But a lot of times, yeah. you know, it's not the ciguatera as much as as uh, a lot of these places just don't believe in, understand or respect or, or use refrigeration like we do. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it in in a dozen different locations where you catch a fish and it's going to be the fish for dinner and you, you know, they're like, oh, you go take a shower, come back. You can, you know, we'll have some hors d'oeuvres out and you go back and there's the fish that you caught sitting out in the sun still there three hours later. You're like, oh, I don't know, man, that does, that does not look good.
2: And it, you're a hundred percent right. This is the most like visual thing I see in my mind now is, is as you said, that is like in the second location we went to one of the native guys. I mean, like I said, again, those guys, when it comes to hunting are on a different level, like they, this guy was explaining to us how they used to bow hunt, uh, um, jaguars, all this stuff. And it's not like he has nothing to prove. I mean, he's just telling us how he does this, but yeah,
3: that's how he they lives. went
2: and sh- yeah. And they, they shot to, uh, to, um, like bush pigs or hogs that they that they shot, and uh, he literally dumped it uh, on the on the riverbank on hot rocks in the sun. Flies all around it, and just cleaned one there that he took up to the village and left the other one for the rest of the day in the sun. Like I'm, it's hot. It's there's like you said, no refrigeration just there. And uh, I think he only went. It I think there was even some vultures pecking at it before he cl- cleaned it the the second one for the villagers and they. They were fine.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, you can't you can't base what you are going to eat or drink on what the people that live there are eating and drinking because I mean, if you go to it, the the quickest place to do it is Christmas Island. They they you know the natives drink water right out of the tap and they're perfectly fine. If you do it, man, you're going to be sick. And if there's water bottled water available, then Drink only that. That'd be my advice. And in some places, it's not available. And I guess where it's not available, then try to filter it you know, before yeah. you, before you drink it. But if bottled water is available, you know, I always take cash and it's usually, you, you need to have that accessible because it's usually on the taxi ride over to somewhere. And you're like, can yeah. we stop somewhere and get a couple of cases of water? And man, I stock up on that water like mm-hmm. as much as possible because you don't, you don't know. And and then sometimes you go to these lodges and a, and a case of water is like $200. And you could go because they can't get it either. Like, yeah, yeah, that's how much it costs. So if you can get it in town, much better. But but usually it takes cash to get that. But yeah. uh, man, that sounds yeah. like an yeah. amazing trip. Um, and also, sorry, Tom, just one last thing I wanted to add with that, the, like getting sick and
2: stuff. And and there's, like I I admire you because I look at your social media a lot when it comes to fitness and stuff. But if you do these kind of trips like the Arapaima and the payara and the jungle stuff and all the saltwater stuff that we've spoken about before being fit and being uh, in good shape for these trips will make the trip 100% better. If you, like, I mean, like I said, we, we went through periods of casting a 12 weight nonstop for three, four hours before you got a hookup. Um, and then you got to be sharp too. Like when that thing eats it, you got to be like a trigger. you got to just be into that thing immediately. Um, and that, like all that, that just that fitness being healthy, um, goes so, so much it will get you just that, that extra, just bit of oomph to land that fish of a lifetime.
3: Are you, would you, um, or is there anything that you would suggest like, 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 um, activity specific type things that somebody could do before they go on a trip like that? um like what do you do to train for like to get ready for it, it sounds funny to train for a fishing trip yeah. but you know a lot of people don't know man you're standing in the, in yeah. in the in the jungle it is literally like the surface of the sun and you're casting a 12 weight for for 5 hours at a time and you you know you only have like 3 or 4 days here so you're trying to make the yeah. the most of it but what are the kind of things that you think are like functional fitness for le- that type of a trip hmm.
2: So, so I'm personally trying to, trying to cut some weight a little bit again, but I think if you can get your stamina up and do quite a bit of cardio, um, whether it it may be, I mean, um, I mean, I mean, I've tried CrossFit a lot before and that's heck of a hard, but that definitely helps with your, with, with everything when it comes to especially stamina and having that resilience and just keep going through the whole, whole of a day. And, uh, I think the the first thing people can do is if they're not, maybe I'm a big guy. So, um, just losing a little bit of weight, uh, already just helps carrying less weight when you, when you're walking to a place or all that stuff. Um, I personally just, as much as I absolutely despise running or doing like, uh, even if it's on a treadmill or doing stairs, or then, um, I'm getting back into some, uh, some training now with my wife at the gym just literally doing all sorts of body movements having um, getting getting the body in shape but also stretching and all that Mm -hmm. stuff to make myself just feel comfortable like I, I just get reach a specific point where I'm, where I'm picking up weight where I'm like, man, I'm uncomfortable. Now this trip's going to be terrible because I am i don't feel good. And then I just kind of kick down some weight and stuff and just get a little bit of fit and get that cardio kicking in. And that, that just makes, makes the whole trip easier.
3: Yeah. that's a really good point. The, the stretching for me is like huge. It's, it's so, it's so important. But what, what I think of, of, you know, it's important to like, be flexible and be mobile and to increase your your flexibility but it's also important to know like when your lower back is hurting this particular stretch helps when when you feel super tight in your hamstrings this is what you should do when your neck is bothering you this is what you should do because when you're sitting on an airplane for all of that time you're traveling like to these places like we're talking about you said you went from Austin to Atlanta to down here to up there then you get on a bus and you're you are traveling for a day and a half to 2 days you need to have like some a go-to little little 15 to 20 minute little routine that you can do that you you know you do these these particular stretches and it undoes all of that sitting and all of that 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 poor position like when you're sitting on a bus bouncing around for for 3 hours when you're crossing across Costa Rica or you're growing you know into into some jungle you can undo that if you know what to do and it's not like you can just take a card down there and be like okay I just touch my toes and I do this <laughs> it's like you, that needs to be this 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 habit that you're in for months before you get there so that when you When you get in these situations or you sleep in a terrible bed, or you know something happens, you have this go to five or six different stretches that you can do, and you'll feel like you'll feel normal again, where in somebody else the whole time they're like, "Man, my neck is killing me from that bed, but they don't know what to do." to undo that. And it's really, you know, there are stretches that you can do and there's there's ways that you can you can get yourself back to normal and if you are supple and flexible to begin with when you sleep on that bad bed and then you stretch the next day even if it's for 10 or 15 minutes, it's not as bad as when you sleep on that bad bed, you don't know what to do, then you sleep on it again and you do that for 4 or 5 nights and now you travel home and man, you're just not right for 2 weeks afterwards. You need know, yeah. to go to the chiropractor or, and that's what a lot of people do is they, they go to the chiropractor, which is a fine thing to do. Chiropractors work perfectly, or they go to yoga class and they're just kind of going through the movements, but they're not paying attention enough to where they can do it themselves and know like, mm-hmm. this is a stretch for this. This is the stretch for this. When my back hurts, I do this. When my neck hurts, I do this. And you can you can really get into, it's like a tackle box of of yeah. things that you can do. To undo the the bad stuff,
2: I think I think a lot of people. Again, I, I use your example because you're a savage when it comes to the exercise <laughs> stuff. But uh, when when I think the fitter you become, and more uh, I think fit people that are really good at exercise and stuff become more in tune with their body. Like they know, okay, this is not working for me, or this is like you said exactly. Step by step, you understand your body more because if you're overweight. And you don't feel good, you're never gonna feel good. Like everything is gonna be aching and paining and stuff. But if you're if you're in tune and you fit and you go like, okay, this is sore, then you can try and adapt to that. But that's why I think it's it's so critical. I don't think you can mention that enough from every aspect of life, because then you'll just be in general good in a good place.
3: Yeah. Well, it's working for you, man. You're doing, you're doing awesome. You're, you're the, you are, uh, I look to you as my, my inspiration for traveling the world, man. You've been to so many cool places and spent so much time in so many cool places. And I saw this Arapaima on your Instagram. <laughs> I hit you up immediately. I was like, dude, we got to yeah. talk about this. I, that is, that is something that I've always wanted to do. So keep me in mind for one of your next trips. I I, I think I might, I, I think I might like to, to do that. I mean, there's, there's like, you know, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of trips that that I kind of have a, a partial interest in, like like going on bonefish trips or something like that. It's like, yeah, but I got bonefish right here in the Keys, and but <laughs> it's something like that where that's the place you go and to catch that fish, and you really need this whole jungle experience, which I've never had. I've never done it. Um, I've never done the peacock bass in the jungle. I've never done the arapaima, and it's just this big missing element of my fishing that that i'm aware of and i want to do it and now that my kids have gotten older and they're they're off doing their own things. My daughter's at college, my wife and I are empty nesters. I'm finding myself having more time. So maybe I can, maybe I can either start hosting trips again, or, or, uh, avoid all of that work and let you do the work. And maybe I'll just go with you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think we can definitely make a plan sooner rather than later. I think if Rodrigo also, uh, if you connect with Rodrigo, we're going to, we're going to make that happen very,
3: very soon. Well, let's do it, man. Jaco, uh, how do people follow you? How do they, um, do a trip with you? How do they do anything? What, what do people do if they're interested in you?
2: So, so, I mean, you can definitely find me on, on Instagram. I'll try and respond to those messages as quick as I can, just at captainjackproductions.com uh, Captain Jack Productions, uh, is the handle. Um, and then, uh, like I said, you can even find it with Yaku Lucas. Or uh, if anybody wants to email me about any sort of information, I'm always happy. Even guys that want to get in the industry or anything like that, when it comes to guiding all that stuff, just yaku at captainjackproductions.com uh, email is usually easier because it leaves me with a reminder that just, I need to get to that. I never, I, I'll never take out an email if I haven't answered it. Um, so it'll sit and look at me. And then, uh, I mean, I'm, all, I'm on some of the other social media stuff and, and I have my website, but that's probably the best way just to connect. And, uh, and yeah, I'm always open and happy. It takes time a little bit some every now and then, but I'll get there.
3: All right. Hey, well, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. That sounds like just an amazing trip. And, and as always, man, you're just a a great guy to talk to. You've got so many cool stories and, and, uh, and also you're guiding in Texas, right? How's the fishing in Texas?
2: Oh man, it's been just so good. I literally got back from Brazil and just went straight back to the coast and saw that. And it is wild. It is like, I, 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 I thought I was finding some new spots that I haven't fished before, but it just seems like the fish are everywhere at the moment. (laughs) is super shallow. The interesting thing is, is the conventional guys have actually been finding a little bit of a tougher time. So it seems like all those fish are just spreading out on the flats and just feeding on shrimps and going wild. So it's from a, from a classic Texas shallow water, belly crawlers, tailors, it's been, it's been phenomenal. And it was good to see how good it is because we had that freeze earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And just to see the system just kick back, the mangroves are growing back. Um, I think the only people that took the hardest knock from that freeze at the moment is probably the Texans themselves because nature's coming back.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. That, uh, that was, that was a, you know, that's probably, I mean, would they, would you call that a storm of the century or an event of the century? Is that what they're calling it? Like,
2: I I believe so. People freaked out. I've never seen anything like that when it comes to just like, like shops being ransacked and just people don't know how to drive and it's just like a chaotic moment we kind of went into our little nest and just kind of just looked at it from the outside but uh it, it was something that you could see people have haven't experienced before um but like I said it just shows you like we as humans we kind of got back a little bit but we had to shake it off but the nature like I mean just to see because the mangroves looked like they'd been dead for i mean I thought it was done. Yeah. And then just now this last couple of weeks you just see them popping up and and the the fish are there the bait fish are there things are just kind of ticking over
3: and it's just it's just cool to see. The mangroves are really one of the most incredible plants. When we have a hurricane in Florida Sometimes the mangroves will, they'll, first of all, they'll lose all their leaves. They look like they're dead and they've been dead for 300 years. Sometimes they'll be upside down, like literally the roots are up in the air and you come back and, and you know, it looks like that for a long time, maybe sometimes even years. And then you come back to that shoreline and you're like, huh, look, there's like leaves here and these mangroves seem to be doing fine and they're not new mangroves. It's the same mangroves, but man, that is like the most hardy plant maybe on the entire planet. It is just, it's amazing what that yeah. plant can do and where it can grow and how it, how it blocks wind. That's, that's amazing. I mean, it'd be blowing yeah. 50 miles an hour. You get on the other side of a mangrove and and there's no wind and it's yeah. just an amazing plant. Um, But, but if
2: it's, it it shows you like the resilience of it and shows you that I the more I, I I'm on the water now too and just kind of noticing, especially not like fishing in a place that's a little bit easy accessible, is like I think the only worst impact for any single place on the planet is humans. Like if we look at like Biscayne Bay and all those places that's getting hammered so much, that's all human stuff. Like that's almost stuff that's hard to recover from, but that's because of us. If you yeah. leave things be, I mean they can work it out.
3: Well, I've always thought that, you know, hurricanes are bad for people and good for nature. Like even if it looks like it is so damaged, I've almost always seen better fishing and better habitat and better populations after a hurricane than before. It, like it, It's just like a whole system reset that just, it cleans the flat. I mean, everything looks better. Like it cleans all this extra sand and sediment and I mean it puts a lot of trash out there too. Don't get me wrong. You'll find washing machines and and chairs. That's out trash. Yeah. I mean and and (laughs) trailers and and pickup trucks that sometimes will get out there. But um, you know, it's it 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 almost always benefits the fishery. Now cold fronts are a different story. Like a like an extreme century you know, once once a century cold front that can be really bad, and we experience that in Isla Mirada, uh, with the bonefish there. But the redfish is a totally different animal, man. That that yeah. fish is totally used to cold weather, and and they live lots lots of places where it does get cold. Those fish in Texas may not used to be, be be used to cold weather, but I'm quite certain that a that a redfish can handle cold weather much better than a bonefish can, or much better than a permit can, or or snook, or or a Goliath grouper. The redfish seems like that seems like a pretty, pretty hardy fish.
2: Yeah. I'm, I've got so much respect for them now. And learning more and more about them, just like, just the honest fish. And sometimes they can be a little bit tricky, but it's such a good fish for, for clients visually and just all those elements. Um, and, uh, surprising enough, I still managed to get into some jacks last week, uh, too, which was kind of the water temperature dropped a little bit. It kind of showed me, we, we got into some interesting stuff in the weather, which was very cool to see, um but yeah uh, we're still working on that i've been working with those girls too on the site with the research that
3: you put me in touch with oh yeah really have you been tagging them for fiu um that's fantastic actually we've
2: shared we've shared some emails so they still also actually uh um, i'm hoping to get them a little bit more involved with the film the film release date is for next year so it's definitely going 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 live next year but um, We're just lying, gathering a few, a little bit more information, just to. Apart, I mean, the the fish porn perspective of all of it, we've got done. We just want to make sure that we add the body to it and make it a, a good movie. So it's it's gonna be sick.
3: All right, man. Well, I like all the movies that you've come up with, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to that one. That one's particularly close to my heart. I love the Jack Crevel. It's one of my favorite yeah. fish. All right, man. I know you got stuff to do, but I appreciate you coming on today and telling us all about the Arapaima. And uh, man, look him up. He's amazing. He's a beast. All right. Thank dude. you so
2: much and hope we get out there soon. Let's, Let's do
3: go. it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, Jaco. Thank you.